Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome back to the podcast. If you've been here before, if this is your first time, welcome. Yeah. I'm Steve. As always, I'm joined by... Devin. Joe. And this is Thinking Sideways. And ladies and gentlemen, happy Halloween. Wow. Wow. Scary month of October. It is, it is. And this is, uh, this is the final show of our Halloween suite I know a couple weeks back, I gave a little bit of a teaser and didn't tell anybody what we were doing, but that's because we're doing it now. Yeah. And what we're going to look into is something that a lot, and I mean a lot of people have requested that we cover, mm-hmm. is Jack the Ripper. Woo! Of course. I got to tell you, too, I, I, there was a lot of personal sacrifice for me because in researching this, I was constantly having to change my underwear. Because it <laughs> it's scary? Oh, it, it's a scary story. It yeah. is. Yeah. Although, luckily, I'm not a prostitute, so it seems like you're kind of like, if you're not a prostitute, you're not probably going to get Also, a like, not in, like, London. Also, it's been, like, more than 100 years. Yeah, he's probably, yeah. probably oh, dead. dead. He might or might not be dead. You never know. Hard to tell. He might be yeah. a demon. Yeah. But this seemed uh, seemed like an appropriate story to uh, to to do for Halloween. Mm. I imagine that most everybody is probably familiar with the story of Jack the Ripper, but for those who don't know it as well as others, we're going to go ahead. We're going to start at the beginning, 
And then we're going to go ahead and walk our way through the case. And there's some things that I wasn't aware of until I'd done the research. And so I think there's a lot of kernels of really interesting things that we're going to bring up. You know, I got to be honest, I haven't been super familiar with the Jack the Ripper story. I mean, you know, I kind of knew it existed, but like I... Uh, despite maybe some indications, don't necessarily love like horror movies or like, yeah. like, stuff like that. So I've never like seen any of the movies that we may reference. I didn't really ever investigate the whole Jack the Ripper thing. So this has been like a really, really interesting thing to be researching because I, I literally had like no frame of reference for this. So I would fall into the category of people who benefit greatly from a whole lot of explanation. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, yeah. and the nice thing is, we we realized early on that this was such a big story that we probably couldn't and shouldn't tackle it on our own. So what we did is we got a little help, mm-hmm. yeah. and we reached out, and we were lucky enough to spend some time talking with a gentleman by the name of Richard Jones. And we we should probably just well, let here let's have Richard introduce himself. Yeah. I'm Richard Jones from uh, the Jack the Ripper Tour in London, which is rippertour.com. I'm a a Jack the Ripper Tour guide, and I've also written two books on Jack the Ripper and made three documentaries on Jack the Ripper. All right. Well, let's start with London itself. The time frame we're working in is 1888. Literally, just yeah. that year. Just pretty that, much. Pretty yeah. much it just that. It was a pretty that. short time span of murders. Very... Like, for example, the Axeman of New Orleans, that was over 18 months. Yeah. And, uh, this is a very, very compressed like... time frame. Mm-hmm. And, and to talk about, I know this is one of the things that you, you were going to take on, Joe, was to kind of tell us a little bit about London at the time. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, you know, I mean, you can get a lot of, um, you can get a lot of background and atmosphere. You know, Sherlock Holmes, the series started... I think the year before the Ripper started, and uh, you can get a lot of the atmosphere of London from reading those those books and those stories, and which are which are great, by the way. I loved those things when I was a kid. Um, but and let me tell you about the specific neighborhood. These, these were called the Whitechapel Murders, and actually, the Whitechapel Murders were eleven murders, of which only about five were actually directly attributed to the Ripper. So the the, the neighborhood of Whitechapel. Let me talk about it a little bit. Uh, was a neighborhood in the London in London's East End, and the East End by the late 16th, early 17th century, had attracted a lot of industrial development, a lot of stuff that was kind of smelly, like foundries, slaughterhouses, tanneries, breweries, and lots of people were there because back in those days, of course, we didn't have cars and freeways and suburbs, so you had to live near where you worked. Yeah. So there were lots of people there, and England at this time, beginning about the 17th century, started a period of urbanization where people were leaving the countryside and flocking to the cities. And you see similar phenomena today. If you go to places like Sao Paulo, Brazil, mm-hmm, same thing. Mm-hmm. People who just flock to the city and they're living in hideous slums. So that same thing happened back in England at that time. This and this lasted until the mid 19th century. Uh, and since things like foundries, breweries, and tanneries and slaughterhouses tend to smell really bad, that mm-hmm. kept rents down. So if you're poor and fr- fresh in from the countryside, you're going to gravitate towards the East End. And of course, that increased the poverty and overcrowding that already existed there even more. Uh, in the Victorian era, era from about 1840 onwards, it was made even worse by immigration, mostly from Ireland and Eastern Europe. Yep. And so these slums were getting extremely crowded and packed. And by the way, I, I read a book about conditions in Britain at this time. It's called Capitalism and the Historians by Friedrich Hayek. 
very good book. And part of the reason for that is that the Napoleonic Wars and stuff, there have been massive shortages of building materials and stuff like that because of the war. And so substandard housing was kind of the norm, and windowless crowded rooms were very much the norm. Anyway, prostitution was endemic in this area. In 1888, the Metropolitan Police estimated that there were 62 brothels and roughly 1,200 prostitutes in Whitechapel alone. Gosh. Which yeah, is a very small area. Yeah. yeah, it's not that big of a neighborhood. Yeah, and that's only part of the East End. Also, Jack London, you guys have heard of Jack London, Call of the mm-hmm. Wild and all that stuff. Yeah, he decided to go undercover in 1902. And of course, this was 14 years after the murders, but still, I don't think things had changed probably all that much at that time. So he went undercover in the East End and put out old ragged clothes and lived among the poor for three or four months, apparently. And uh, he actually slept in the streets and stuff like that. I mean, he had, he had an out. I mean, he had money, so he could actually leave and go get a nice hotel room and take a shower or something like that. <laughs> anyway. but, Once in a while. Yeah, but he spent time in there, and he, and, he, and he took up and talked to a lot with a lot of people. And I've been reading his book about it. He wrote a book about it called The People of the Abyss, which I am not actually through with yet, unfortunately. I but, think it's interesting. Joe did all his research by reading books. Yeah. Let's throw that out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, The People of the Abyss. But anyway, I recommend it. Like I said, I haven't finished it yet, but it's, it's, it's good reading so far. Um, but here's how he describes his first foray in there. It's, and it's funny, we read the book, he got to London, and he's in the better part of London. He's saying, oh, I want to go to the East End. And everybody's going to say, why the hell would you want to go there? <laughs> and he, and he really, seriously, he get, so he gets this cabbie, uh, this guy with a handsome, you know, a horse-drawn cab or thing, and, and he says, I want to go to the East End. And this guy's going, oh. Uh, where do you want to go there? He says, I just want to go there. He says, why? <laughs> and, and finally he talks to this guy. He says, basically, I want, to go, I want to go to the East End and I want to go find a secondhand store where I can buy some ratty old clothes. And so they trot along until they find one of those. And here's his description of his first foray into the East End. Nowhere in the streets of London may one escape the sight of abject poverty, while five minutes' walk from almost any point will bring one to a slum. But the region my handsome was now penetrating was one unending slum. The streets were filled with a new and different race of people, short of stature and of wretched or beer-sodden appearance. Here and there lurched a drunken man or woman, and the air was obscene with sounds of jangling and squabbling. At a market, tottery old men and women were searching in the garbage thrown in the mud for rotten potatoes, beans, and vegetables, while little children clustered like flies around a festering mass of fruit, thrusting their arms to the shoulders, into the liquid corruption and drawing forth morsels but partially decayed, which they devoured on the spot. Uh. I know, I know. That's life, uh, according to Jack London, in the East End. So in other words, uh, Whitechapel was an armpit. And I looked at it uh, just today. I went out on Google Street View, and I cruised around. Do you ever cruise around the streets <laughs> on, on you Google sure Street do. View? I know. I've actually been there. And yeah. it's, it's, no, it's not as bad as it It's not be. a bad place. It's very busy, and it's very... Tight quarters compared to what we're used to here in the states. Yeah, and but it's, it's not it's not a slummy no, joint at no, all. It's, it's but a it is rougher still, on the edges. Yep, There's a lot of graffiti and some perfect. rundown bu- buildings, but no, it's not hell on earth by any means. It's like it's come up a lot in the world since then. And Richard has some really good points about the uh, the area at and, the time as well. And since he actually lives in London, he probably has a lot more 
knowledge of it than yep. I do. Yeah, so let's let's go ahead and have let, hear his description. Whitechapel, Whitechapel got a, a bad rap at the time. Uh, I mean, there were parts of Whitechapel that were horrible slums, but there were parts of Whitechapel that were as good as any other parts of London. In fact, London had worse slums than Whitechapel. Mm. Uh, but it was Whitechapel largely because of the Ripper murders. Whitechapel got the, the press coverage. And so today, when we tend to think of slum and London, we, we tend to focus on that area. But there were parts of Marylebone, parts of Notting Hill, even parts of the city of London not too long before the Ripper murders of 1888, which were just as bad and in some cases even worse. But as yeah. I say, because of the press coverage, the, the, the history's focus tends to be now on Whitechapel and the East End of London as a whole. You've got the, you've got the agricultural revolution and throwing people off the lands. I mean, this, this had the, but then you've got unemployment in, in the farmlands of Essex and everywhere. You'd had the Irish potato famines, so you'd got the people coming over with the potato famine. Then, oh. say, you pogroms, the Jewish East End, and really the, the whole... I mean, London was... Well, it was the wealthiest capital city in the world. Uh, it's the biggest port in the world as well, so it was a massive place. But right on the doorstep of the city of London, the wealthiest square mile on earth, you had these people living in abject poverty, horrific uh -huh. conditions, crammed into common lodging houses, and uh, it, it, it didn't go unnoticed by a lot of people. Well, so uh, you probably want to talk about the murders, huh? Well, yeah, we should probably get into the murders. It's not. I feel like the murders aren't even like the bulk of this story, right? Well, I mean, it's like, no, it's... I, I think we need to talk about the victims. Right. Oh, yeah, of course. They're definitely important. Of uh, and when you read about this story, you're going to hear about the canonical five, uh -huh. and those are the five main victims. And Joe kind of touched on that a little bit in the beginning. There are there's talk that there were other victims that could have been Ripper victims that mm -hmm. aren't directly attributed to him. And we're actually going to start out with one of those victims first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the thing about it. It's, it's really hard to say because it's like, you know, you're living in a slum and people tend to stab each other to death in the slums a lot. So yeah, it's like, bad, bad things happen. <laughs> yeah, they do. So uh, the first person that we're going to talk about, her name is Martha Tabram. I believe is how you pronounce her yeah. last name, or Tab Tabran. Tabram? Tabram. Tabram, there we I go. Like Tabram. Uh, she was 39 years old, and like a lot of the women that we're going to talk about, she'd fallen on hard times. Uh, in 1875, her husband leaves her for her quote-unquote love of the drink. For 13 years, she's with another man. Uh, he evidently used to sell trinkets. And then eventually he, uh, he leaves her and she doesn't know what to do. So she, she kind of turns to prostitution as a way to, to get by. And I guess I'll just mention, you know, it's going to start to sound a little repetitive mm -hmm. <laughs> when we start talking about the history of these. The story pretty much goes for all of these women. It's... They had a husband who left them or died. They were with a man for a little while. That person left them. They had to turn to prostitution. But also they were drunks. But they yeah. had to turn to prostitution. And because of that things maybe went a little downhill. Yeah, and, and these think, are all, uh, these are all, I think, really sad stories, you know, I mean, in very. researching a couple of these victims, it's like their lives really could have turned out a lot better. Unfortunately, 
alcohol was not a hell. And I'm not crusading against alcohol. As you know, I love me my beer. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in this well, and, case, it didn't serve them well. I think another point to make is I can't remember the exact phrase that was used, but not all of them were what you would say call a full-time prostitute. Mm -hmm. They would turn to it in times of desperation. It wasn't as if they were out working the streets all the time. A lot of them did other little things to try to make money, but when money was short... And you needed a couple extra shillings. You may as well. There was there was an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Martha here was kind of that way. She wasn't a full time prostitute, but on the sixth of August, eighteen eighty eight. She was seen out and about with another prostitute whose nickname was Pearly Paul. They all had awesome prostitutes. They all had great nicknames. They really did. Uh, And these ladies, evidently, they were partying with a couple of soldiers, or maybe they were sailors. It's unclear. And around midnight, they parted ways, and Pearly went with one man one way, and Martha went with the other in the other direction. Martha took the gentleman that she was with if she was with a gentleman, because again, we're not positive, into an alley of a location known as George Yard. And I think that this is probably a good place to stop real fast and explain it for anybody who hasn't been to London. It's not a grid. It's not square blocks. It is full of tiny little alleyways, and they cut in between, and they twist, and they turn, so there's lots of dead ends and dark places for business to happen, if you know what I mean by wink, wink, business. Yeah. So that's what she was doing. She was going into one of these dark alleys. I was going to say, by the way, you know, I've never driven in London. I've always been on foot there. I, mm-hmm. just, I haven't been there that much, but it's like I would hate to drive in that town. Holy crap! Oh, it's it's insane. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely insane. But back to 1888. (laughs) Less driving back then. Uh, Martha's body was officially found at 445 on the 7th of August, 445 in the morning, uh, at the entry of one of the buildings in George Yard. Evidently, there were several buildings. Sounds like it was kind of a courtyard, Mm -hmm. but I'm not positive. Several people in the night had come home and gone up through the entry and upstairs and then had come back down. None of them saw her body. It wasn't until a man by the name of John Reeves was leaving in the morning and he came down the stairs and he realized that there was a body laying in the entry and it was in a puddle of blood. And this was what time? Uh, this was 4.45 in the morning. There are reports okay. of people coming in at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, somebody left, I think, like 2.30 or 3. They didn't see her. So the window for where she, how she could have, when she could have got there is pretty narrow. But again, this is accounts that are over 130 years old. Yeah, yeah. from people who were likely drunk at the time, right? And who are or used to... First like, thing in the morning, you're not really paying attention. Yeah. And it's dark. you got to remember, there's no lighting. Yeah, and you're also used to people like maybe being passed out in your stoop or whatever there's that you know you would probably say i mean i didn't see it i didn't recognize it as a corpse but yeah there was like a body i had to step over Mm -hmm. versus like no there was nothing there yeah Yeah. it's probably worth remembering too that uh this is london 1888 and they didn't have street lights like we have today nope it was freaking dark out there very dark yeah very dark i mean i was there at night and even with modern Mm -hmm. lighting you get in one of those alleys and it's freaking dark dark Yeah. yeah Uh, the medical examiner showed up at 5.30 in the morning and had placed the time of death at 
somewhere between 2.30 to 2.45 in the morning. Now, this is at Modern Forensics. It wasn't as if they were, you know, using a thermometer to check the body temperature or doing an, had an accurate judge of lividity, things like that. You know, this is kind of guesswork. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah CSI London was kind of crude at that time. It was yeah. very crude. Well, the way she was killed was extremely savage. She was stabbed 39 times. Holy mackerel. Uh, let's see. There was five wounds in her left lung, two in her right, one wound in her heart, five wounds in her liver, two in her spleen, and six in her stomach. They weren't able to identify which was like the first? Right? No, they couldn't no. tell which was first. But the weird thing is that all of these wounds appear to have come from a penknife except for one, and that was the one that pierced her sternum. And they said it was probably a bayonet or a large dagger, and the bayonet made him think that it, it played into, remember we said that she was supposedly with some soldiers? Mm. A soldier would have a bayonet. I believe that this one was, I think, attributed to gang violence, correct? They they think it might have been, but it's it just was. I never got a clear read. It sounds like I mean, you know, it sounds like to me somebody stabbed her a bunch of times and she didn't go quite go down because she was stabbed with a little bitty knife. Mm-hmm. And then finally somebody else steps in and says, "Okay, coup de gras time," and and hits her with the big bayonet. Yeah. Oh, so that's yeah. interesting because then I I felt it would have gone the other way that like some soldiers were drunk accidentally like stabbed her with a band for whatever reason and right? then tried to cover and then up. was like oh crap uh the this seems like something that could happen in the west the, the you know in white chapels like hey, here's a pen knife i'll just stab her a bunch We're of times so i it's gotta okay. cover it up you know sort of that's where my mind goes with that so it's yeah. interesting that we're yeah opposite we're on kinda, so yeah no i'm thinking i'm thinking it's that somebody decided hey this is not working out let's go for the big guns here yeah. well, and the, what but how old was she she was 39 39 stabs. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, I mean, I that, is not, that is not necessarily insignificant. <laughs> well, no, that's true. But they also yeah. don't, this is one of the reasons that she's considered an outlier and they don't think that she is one of the Ripper victims, mm. is the MO is, is not the same. Yeah. The MO oh, yeah. evolved. Yeah, mm. it's but very different. one of the things that happened in every Ripper killing was the throat was cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hers was not. And they, and they stabbed her and didn't, they didn't, rip her open the way the Correct. Did. She was yeah. just stabbed to death. She wasn't caught yeah. open. But yeah. but yeah. we're going to get into that. I guess yeah. uh, one, there's like was one final like, ah, I'm right. Um, yeah. Okay. Is that like, it wasn't an abandoned area. There were uh-uh. a bunch of people sleeping around. If you were going to like stab a lady 39 times or whatever with a pen knife, she's going to scream and make noise. Mm-hmm. Versus if you're going to run her through the bayonet and she dies and then try and cover it up, that's going to be pretty like quiet. That's compared. True. That's, that's true. Comparatively. But, uh, I'm not going to say it's going to be silent. I, I want to say, though, that I swear somewhere in the reading I heard someone reported they thought they heard a scream. There's so many of that, though. Like, I know. There's a lot like, of that. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Witness statements are really bad, especially when it's two in the morning. Well, it's it not only it's two in the morning, but it's in like a really horrible neighborhood. Like there's drunks and like a bunch of crazy people wandering around all the time. You think you kind of tune it out. I mean, uh, you know, one of the victims that I'm going to talk about in a little bit here, people are like, well, I don't know. Like I heard some screams in the distance kind of, but like, that's pretty normal. That's pretty par so... for the course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't I think anything yeah. of it. Yeah. I think that's just kind of speaks of the time. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the first of the canonical five. Okay, and that would be Marianne Nichols, the first of the canonical five. Yeah. Uh, Marianne Nichols, a.k.a. Polly Nichols, was killed five days past her 43rd birthday. And that was August 31st, I believe, 1888. Mary, a little bit of background here, had been married. She'd had five children, but unfortunately fallen under the influence of demon rum. And uh, because of her alcoholism, although there are other, there, there's conflicting accounts as to why the marriage sure. broke up. There's always extenuating circumstances. Yeah. There's like always, the, the yeah. drink and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and it, there were all kinds of different theories. But anyway, but it broke up about 1880, 81, something like that. Probably because of her alcoholism. But again, this is in dispute. So she spent most of her remaining years between then and 1888 when she died in workhouses and boarding houses. Can just and for... workhouses, you probably want to know what those are, well, right? I was just going to ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look at that, workhouses and boarding houses. Yeah, what are those, yeah, Joe? Well, yeah, exactly. Well, boarding houses, obviously, are places where you just go rent a room or rent a bed mm. for the night or, mm-hmm. you know, or by the week or whatever. And then workhouses are places where if you're, if you're poor and sort of derelict, then you're sort of grabbed and stuffed into the workhouse and kind of forced to work, but at the same time, you have a place to live. It's kind of like the poor farm here in America. Yeah, you like work for board. Yeah. You know, and and one of the things that's really crazy is, oh gosh, in, in the boarding houses, I can't remember what they call it, but it wasn't always rooms that people would rent. I mean, this is just an example. They would often just rent a bed. Well, they actually had what equated to rows of coffins that you would lay in, and that was your itty-bitty place to sleep. And then if you didn't have enough money for that, for I don't remember what it was, a a couple of pennies is the phrase I'm going to use, but whatever the, the currency was at the time, the smallest amount, it was a couple, they had posts in these places. And they would tie a rope, two ropes, one at about shoulder level and one about butt height. And for a couple of pennies, you could lean against that with a bunch of other people and sleep on your feet. Uh-huh. That this is how crazy the boarding houses were just to get a place so that you were out of the weather. Hmm. Rough times. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad I'm not living there right now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. uh, so she uh, she scratched a living mostly from just handouts, charity, prostitution, and she was, of course, an alcoholic, and, and the money she made, she mostly spent on alcohol. At the time of her death, she was living at a boarding house in Spitalfields, which is a neighborhood just north of Whitechapel. So, on to the murder. Uh, at 1.30 a.m. on August 31st, 1888, she was booted out of her boarding house because she didn't have money to pay for her bed. So apparently this was a pay-as-you-go kind of basis here. You know, Usually, yeah. That yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she left saying she was going to earn some money on the streets and be back. The last sighting of her was at 2.30 a.m. at the corner of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road. Mm. And I'm sure you're all familiar with that. So. Right, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Actually, okay. there's a lot of maps out there that really show this quite well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's... people can definitely look that up. Yeah. It's good to, to help follow along. Yeah, it is. Sure. It's great. You know, using Google Maps, I was able to look at that and able to chart out her course. So she was at on Whitechapel Road. Whitechapel Road, of course, was a, a fairly busy thoroughfare and actually not, not as slummy as the rest of Whitechapel. Apparently at that time, it was in reasonably good reasonably good repair. As soon as he got off of it, things sort of went downhill. But it was okay. Uh, so she probably was plying her trade on Whitechapel Road. And uh, 
between where she was last seen and where she probably encountered the Ripper, I'm estimating 1,750 feet was the distance she covered between, and the time she was murdered, we'll find as we'll find later, was about 3 a.m. or a little bit after. So covering 1,750 feet in half an hour is not unreasonable. No, not at no, all. No, yeah, yeah. So she was moving northeast on the on the street apparently, and I'm I'm believing she met the Ripper someplace further away. Well, you know, quite a bit further away from Osborne Road. Uh, anyway, at 3:40 a.m., her body was found. There's a short little side street north of of Whitechapel Road called Bucks Row, and now it's called Durward Street. So if you're going to do a Google on that, it's Durward, Durward, not Bucks Row. But she was found in this short little side street, was only, which is only a couple of blocks long, called Bucks Row by a cart driver. And he's, she was laying on her back, and her skirt had been raised over her head. Her throat had been cut twice from left to right, which to me implies a right-handed ripper, you think? Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. And her abdomen had been violently slashed. There was one massive jagged gash and Ugh. some other smaller gashes. I know. Yeah. Uh, they called a surgeon who examined the body, and he arrived at 4 a.m. and estimated she'd been dead for about half an hour. His name was Dr. Henley Llewellyn. He later suspected the wounds indicated a left-handed ripper, and I don't know why he suspected that, because for me, I mean, when I'm looking at somebody who's throat is slashed from left to right, I'm thinking right hand, hello. Left to right, right to left, right? Yeah. Well, Sorry, when just, you slash, we're just standing in here, I'm just slashing at the air. Yeah, yeah. When you, you would When you slash somebody's across. throat you're probably most likely going to do it from behind. You're going to grab them, you're going to pull their chin up, and you're going to like draw the blade across their throat from behind, right? Probably, but right. also maybe not. Yeah, yeah I uh, mean, if you... It okay, depends. Let's, well, let's say if you're standing in front, then it would be the reverse because uh, you're. I would imagine that you wouldn't overhand it from right to left. You'd pull from left to right. You'd want to, okay. but... Joe, why do you have a knife? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. This is how I die. Okay, yeah, so you're, you're you're gonna show us. All right, so like, let's say let's say I'm the Ripper. Okay, first of all, if I if I if I'm gonna slit your throat from behind, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it like this. You're gonna pull motion, from your motion. left to your right, which right. would be the victim's left to right across the throat. Right. I say, but let's say I do it from the front. Now, the best way to do it from the front is to do it like this. Is to the blade is going. So the blade it, is it like runs down your, the side of your arm. Yeah, essentially, I'm not. Arm. I'm not Comes holding. Up. Yeah, essentially, I'm mm -hmm. pointing the. If I'm holding my fist out in front of me, the blade is pointing downward. Mm -hmm. And then I just walk up to her and I go wham like this again, a left to right from her point of view. Mm -hmm. Wound. Um, if, <laughs> if I do it, that's that's the that that is the best way to do it. I guess that the but, next way to do it is to grab her hair and do this. Although I could do this. Which yeah. is going from either directions yeah. and That's, reaching forward. Uh, but I right. mean, I, anyway, to, uh, you know, I don't want to belabor the point too, point too much. I think that to me, the the left to right wound indicates a right-handed ripper. Okay. But Doctor Llewellyn, uh, who examined the, who examined the cuts, said that he 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 believed that the wounds indicated that he was a left-handed person. I guess it would just matter like how deep each part. I mean, you know, right? The start yeah. of the cut. A cut usually gets deeper. Yep. In the way that it goes, as, yeah, as it travels. So he would know, kind of, but also maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, but Who knows? anyway, it was a sharp, it was a sharp knife. Uh, she probably died pretty quickly, mercifully. But uh, the rumor that uh, the the Ripper was left-handed persisted for pretty much forever, uh, even though Llewellyn himself expressed doubts about his own theory later on. Mm. 
uh, the inquest into the death went on for more than three weeks after the murder because they were still bringing in evidence. They were still interviewing people from around the neighborhood and things like that. And at the end, the major finding was that uh, Marianne Nichols was murdered at just after 3 a.m. So that would put her death about half an hour after she was last seen. And then the next, the only major thing after that, and this has nothing to do with anything, but I'll bring it up, bring it up anyway. Somebody started a rumor that somebody named, quote, Leather Apron, quote, unquote, was the killer. We're going to talk about Leather Apron more. I know, Leather Apron. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. There was a Jewish bookmaker, or excuse me, a Jewish bootmaker in the neighborhood named John Pizer, uh, who was apparently had the nickname Leather Apron. And so he was arrested, of course, because, hey, he's Jewish. He's got a leather apron. Yeah. Although I got to say, I, I do have to say, as nicknames go, Leather Apron is pretty damn creepy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like uh, you know the local. It's it's wearing your your work clothes constantly. Think if you if your garbage man if yeah. your garbage man wears his coveralls and then just goes home and is wearing them, goes to the grocery store, he's just wearing them. Goes to the bar, he's just wearing them. It'd be a little weird. Yeah. So I can yeah. see how you would be like. Hey, garbage man, what's up? You know, that'd be how that nickname starts. But yeah. it's still weird. Leather apron. It's just, there's just something kind of, there's sort of serial killerish about it. You know, I, I understand why that would arouse suspicions. Uh, anyway, this guy was arrested and, of course, interrogated, probably beaten. Who the hell knows? But uh, he later re- was released and actually received some settlements from a few papers that had published libelous information about him. Well, let's, let's move on to our next victim, who is Annie Chapman. Annie was sometimes called Dark Annie. She had a a full dark head of hair, and that's how she got her nickname. But uh, she was 47 years old at the time of her death. And same story, she'd moved to Whitechapel after her marriage had fallen apart. She had issues with drink. Uh, she was all actually getting what would equate to alimony from her ex-husband, which was a amount of 10 shillings a week, and also had a boyfriend. She was living with a man. Mm. Well, when her ex found out that she was living with another man, he cut her alimony to two shillings a week, and suddenly her boyfriend evaporates. Because well, there's suddenly happens, huh? not this easy flow of money. Because you know, ten shillings, yeah. totally enough to live on at the time. It actually wasn't. It was. It was okay money. I mean, it didn't. It didn't get you everywhere, but at least it was something. Fair. Uh, well, at that point, she didn't have a consistent income, and as we said, she she took up casual prostitution uh, along with doing some other work. <laughs> Sorry, that's just such a great term. Casual, casual prostitution. You yeah, know, totally yeah. normal. Part-time prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay, the question well, is, is there were so many prostitutes, how did they find their customers? I mean, holy... I mean... If you were a John, it must have been like just, I mean, incredibly juicy times. I imagine that they were, you know, there, there's all kinds of men in the area coming off of ships and yeah. coming in to do work. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine that it wasn't hard. Yeah, I probably, they also worked pretty hard hawking their wares. Probably. And I, I probably should have mentioned this in my description of the neighborhood, too, is that it was not far north of the Thames River mm-hmm. and not far, not far away from the docks. Yeah. Well, at at some point, anyway, 
This is going to be on September 8th of 1888. Uh, Annie was not allowed to stay at the lodging house that she'd been at because, as we just talked about with several, she didn't have the money, so that she couldn't stay. Uh, so she left to go make the money. Mm-hmm. That is uh, a that's another common theme in these. These guys all they all go back to their that guys. These women mm-hmm. all, all go back. They get booted out because they don't have the cash. And yep. next thing you know, they're dead. At, not all of them, but so far, <laughs> most yeah. of them. Most of them. Are... At some point. Between after 5.15 to 5.30 in the morning, uh, there's a carpenter who lived at number 27 Hanbury Street. Mm -hmm. And he went into the backyard of his premises, and as he goes towards the door, he said he heard a woman say no. And he wasn't sure where it'd come from, but he thought it was on the other side of the fence of the yard. Uh, then he went back in. He came out a couple minutes later. He heard something hit the fence that divided number 27 where he lived and number 29, which is the next house over. What was his name? It was Albert Kadosh. Okay. I be- I'm hope I'm pronouncing it right. Sorry, Albert, if I'm not. Uh, but <laughs> I'm sure he cares. Yeah, he said it seemed as if something touched the fence suddenly. Touched he the didn't, fence suddenly. He didn't, however, go look and see what it was. Instead, he went back into the house and he left for work. And that's how he said he knew what time he heard all of this. Because as mm. he walked out, he looked up at the big clock tower and could see what time it was. Uh, he said it was 5.32 when he left. Okay. About 6 o'clock that morning, another gentleman by the name of John Davis, who lived in 29 Hanbury Street, came downstairs. And when he walked out into the narrow passage, which is essentially an alleyway, mm-hmm. he saw what ends up being Annie Chapman and a couple of workmen come around right at that time. And he says, men, come here, is evidently what the story goes. And they found the mutilated body of Annie Chapman. Her dress was pulled up around her knees, which we heard in the last murder. This is starting to become a bit of an MO. Mm. Um, A deep cut had been slashed across her throat. Mm -hmm. Her intestines had been tugged out and laid across her shoulder, which is disturbing. Mm -hmm. That's gross. (laughs) And her uterus and her bladder had been removed. And the uterus was taken with like that was never found, right? Uh, that is correct. I do not. I do not remember she ever was the seeing one, anything. She was the one where the, I think it was the first kind of. Hey, maybe this person like has some kind of medical Tra- training. Um, wasn't she? No, that's actually that comes in later on. Oh, I'm but the, these <laughs> these organs were removed, and uh, you know, as with the others, it's a it's extremely grisly. I don't know where which direction. They thought her throat was cut from. Mm. I didn't catch that detail, though I'm sure it's out there. I just didn't catch it. Sure, sure. But that's how she was killed, which is not a nice way to die, no. I don't think. No, but at least he uh, slit their throats first before he started tearing their bodies that's, up. Yeah. That's, that's, I suppose that's a mercy. Well, <laughs> we've, we've got to believe that, because otherwise yeah. you would think that the screams of agony would have been mm-hmm. so loud. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It People would have been caught on the first, ti- yeah, uh, first of try. Of course. Yeah. So the next uh, victim, canonical, 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 canonical <laughs> victim is Elizabeth Stride, and she uh, 
<clears throat> is a little different than the rest of the victims, her story. Uh, she was 44 years old, uh, and she was from Sweden. She was killed on September 30th, 1888. Uh, she was originally married to a ship's carpenter um, after a life of prostitution. So unlike many of the victims who turned to prostitution, she was pretty much a prostitute the whole time. <laughs> she was described by her uh, boyfriend, kind of at the time, I guess he was kind of her boyfriend at the time as uh, having a calm demeanor, except for when she started drinking. Oh yeah. I do remember that about her. She, she was a little fiery when she mm -hmm. got, uh, well, she wasn't was the straight only tequila one. night. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, her husband, uh, died of TB and she, they had no children. Her husband, the ship's carpenter, I think it was tuberculosis. Yeah. Tuberculosis. Sorry. Okay. And I think it was, um, like 10 years before she okay. came to Whitechapel. Uh, however, a little like snippet of the kind of person she was. She told like everyone in Whitechapel that her husband, um, and two of their nine children had died, died in the sinking of the queen Anne and that she'd lost <laughs> all of the teeth on her left side and developed the stutter because somebody had kicked her in the face as they swam to safety. <laughs> Uh, so she was known <laughs> yeah. for tall tales? Yes. Sounds like. Uh, so after her husband died, she moved to Whitechapel and turned to hooking again and had kind of an on-again, off-again relationship with a Jewish man, um, during which time she learned Yiddish. And this may come into play later. It will come into play. Uh, and I, in fact, Elizabeth Stride was seen just 20 minutes prior to her discovery, the discovery of her body. Um, she'd been seen many times throughout the night and almost all of her night was like very well accounted for, you know, she was <sighs> selling her wares. She was with different gentlemen. She was drinking. She was brawling. She was drinking some more. Sounds um, like a fun girl. Yeah. She was seen with three different gentlemen and everybody kind of just assumes that she was, they were clients of hers. She was last seen rejecting the advances of a man just outside of a Jewish social club. And there was a concert that was happening in the club, but uh, nobody said they heard anything happen. So there were a lot of people around when she died, but nobody heard anything. Mm. Maybe because there was a concert happening. Probably but, the concert thing going but on. But also maybe not. It's hard to tell. Uh, one witness named Israel Schwartz reported seeing Stride being attacked and thrown to the ground. Outside of uh, Dutfield's yard, Dutfield's yard. How would Dutfield, you say, I say Dutfield. I think, I think it's Dutfield. Dutfield yard yeah. um, at about uh, twelve forty-five a.m. And apparently, the it, according to Israel Schwartz, the attacker called out Lipsky to a second man who was standing nearby. But it was possible that there was some kind of uh, anti-Semitic taunt happening there. Because apparently there was a prisoner that was really famous at the time who was an anti-Semitic who was named Israel Lipsky. The coroner at the time, uh, Blackwell, thought that Stride might have been pulled backwards onto the ground by her neckerchief before her throat was cut. When they found her, her neckerchief was cut in half along with her throat. Um, another coroner later concurred that Stride was likely to have been on the ground when she was killed by a swift slash from left to right across her neck. And then there was bruising on her chest that suggested that she was pinned to the ground during her attack. Mm -hmm. So that, I don't want to go, I mean, you know, I feel like we don't have to go into a lot of the grisly details about no. a lot of these. Nah. You can kind of assume from where the trajectory has been going 
that's where we're headed. <laughs> yeah, the one thing about the, the, the Ripper is that his attacks grew more horrific as time went by. Yeah. And he, were, and every one of them, they, they, go, they got more savage. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're going to talk about off, that in off, just a minute. They started <laughs> off pretty bad already. But There's, uh, and, this, and Elizabeth Stride is one of the two of the double knights. Right, and she she only had her throat cut. She wasn't mm-hmm. fully butchered yeah. as, as the others were. Yeah, which led some people to suggest that perhaps because it was so busy around there that he was interrupted in mid course. Correct, yeah. and and that's what leads us to victim number four, four which would be Catherine Kate Eddowes. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a little background on Kate. She's 46 years old, and same story, fallen on hard times, has issues with drinking. Uh, On Saturday, the 23rd of September, she was picked up at 8.30 at night by the local police constable Mm. because she was passed out in the road. (laughs) They hauled her in. They say she sobered up enough that they let her go around 1 o'clock in the morning. I, if I remember the story, they knew she had sobered up because they knew her and she was sitting in her cell kind of singing and everybody could hear her. And Okay, well, I guess, Kate, you're okay. Let's get you out of here. Uh, the weird thing is that she didn't head in the direction of her lodging house. She kind of went in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a police constable walking his route, which took him through an area known as Mitre Square. And he found the body of Kate at 1.45 in the morning. His route took him through Mitre Square 15 minutes earlier, though. So at 1.30, he came through, and there was nothing there. He came through at 1.45, and he finds the body. Well, that suggests that perhaps the murder occurred between 1.30 and 1.45. His powers of deduction. <laughs> he should, he's a regular Sherlock man. Oh, totally, it really man. is. Uh, well, here's, here's what they find. And and this is this is pretty grisly, but um, her neck had been slit, her thighs were naked because, of course, her her dress had been pulled up, um, her abdomen was exposed, her intestines had been pulled out and placed over the right shoulder. Mm. Um, there was matter smeared on her cheek. A piece of her intestines, evidently about two foot long piece, had been cut free and was laying next to uh, her left arm, almost as if it had been laid there by design. Her right ear had been cut. There's a bunch of clotted blood on her. I mean, basically, she has been butchered. And this one is so interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Because, uh, well, I mean, I think that actually um, Richard talked a little bit about this too in terms of that, you know, we just said there was like 15 minutes Mm -hmm. for this to happen. Like truly this, all of everything that Steve just said happened in 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, And, And she was still warm. Her body you, was still warm, which tells you it was minutes ago. Yeah, but when you think about it, it wouldn't take that much time. I mean, you slit her throat, throw her on the ground, you know, just basically stab her, rip her open, reach in, rip out some organs, lay them on the ground. It wouldn't take any time at all, really. It would be well. Theoretically, I mean, it could have been quick and clean. It could have been quick and messy. It could have been any of that. It's hard to say. Uh, I, I think there's some some details that aren't nearly as gory that are probably pertinent. 
that we can share. And Richard helped kind of walk us through that. And, and let's, let's hear what he said about that. Yeah. Uh, what happened was uh, Elizabeth Stride's body was found at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and she was found in Duckfield Yards off Burner Street. Uh, she was found by a man named Louis Deemschutz, who'd come back to the yard from uh, he'd been hawking cheap jewellery, but he was the steward of a, a, a work, a, well, a Polish and Jewish working men's club, or socialist club that was in Duckfield Yard. And as he came into the yard, his pony shied and pulled aside, and he looked into the dark and he saw something lying on the ground. So his first thought was it, it was a, just something lying there. So he reached over to lift it with his horse, with his whip, and, and he couldn't. So he jumped down and struck a match, and it was a woman. Now, his next action is, is no one's really ever explained it. Uh, he presumed it was his wife and she was drunk. So he went into <laughs> the club to investigate, to, to check on his wife. And he found his wife in the kitchen, and that's when he went to the other members. And he said, oh, there's a woman downstairs, and uh, she's drunk or she's dead. I'm not certain which. So they went down, and they found that her throat had been cut, uh, and it was, in fact, a murder victim. But the rest of her body hadn't been mutilated. Uh, which was the modus operandi of the Ripper killings. So this led the police to surmise that the Ripper had been interrupted, that when he'd come into the yard, he'd actually interrupted the Ripper, and the Ripper had jumped back, and it was that sudden movement that startled the pony, which caused it to shy. And then whilst Deemshus was in the yard, in fact, it dawned on him later that day that the Ripper was probably hiding alongside him in the dark yard. So had he acted differently at that point... The chances are the Ripper would have been taken, but he presumed it was his wife and went into the club, which gave the Ripper those vital minutes or even seconds to get out of the yard, and he headed for the city of London, which is where he met Catherine Eddowes. Now, her body was found 45 minutes later in Mitre Square, which is no great distance away from Burner Street. You can, you can walk it in, in less than 10 minutes. Uh, so her body was found there. It, it was just, as I say... a two murders, and that became known as the Night of the Double Murder. But it, there is a, a belief or a theory that Elizabeth Stride wasn't a Ripper victim because she was actually seen being attacked by a man called Israel Schwartz 15 minutes before her body was discovered. So some people think that she was actually a coincidence, not a victim. And uh, bizarrely, some, some historians even refer to her as Lucky Liz Stride because she only had a throat cut. The rest of the body wasn't mutilated. Oh, that's so not so lucky, lucky in my, in my <laughs> I was going to say, what's lucky about that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that guy's lucky he didn't get his throat slit. Too. This is it. <laughs> that's, it. that's the night probably he came closest to being caught. But uh, as I say, the, the Deemschutz didn't, didn't uh, as I say, he, he left the scene. And that gave the Ripper the time he needed. Next up uh, is the last of the Canacon. Canonical. Canatonical. Canatonical five. <laughs> we'll just cut that. <laughs> so Mary Kelly, she was found, well, murdered, uh, November 9th, 1888. And she uh, was like only 25 years old, which is, um, if you've been following along, quite young for this kind of spate of murders. Uh, yeah. And there's no really good information about her life prior to like 1887. Uh, mostly it's just like conjecture or like what she told people. Um, she was probably married at 16 to a coal miner who died like three or four years later in a mine explosion. She was probably from Ireland. 
Um, but beyond that, uh, facts are pretty few and far between. After her husband's death, she took to prostitution. Apparently, she was really, really attractive. But it's a little bit of a mystery as to like what she actually looked like. Um, she had a couple different nicknames. One was Dark Mary, but they think that probably... That had to do more with um, the type of personality she was when she was drunk than <laughs> with her appearance. She probably had blonde or red, like light red hair. Um, she was fair. They called her fair. Pale skinned. Yeah. Every once in a while. She had a lot of nicknames. I don't even want to go there. She was described as um, very quiet, a very quiet woman when sober, but noisy when drunk. Or when in drink, excuse me, by the man that she was living with at the time of her death. But I also, I'll note, that's why I believe that she's Irish, because I am Irish, too. <laughs> Are you noisy when you're drunk? <laughs> I am, I, well, I, to be fair, I'm noisy all the time. Um, yeah, I'm not quiet when sober. We're going to dive into this. And this one, as Joe was mentioning, they just keep getting worse and worse. So this one's rough. Um, by most accounts, after a long night of multiple sightings with multiple men, Mary was probably seen with a man whose description uh, is inadmissible to me because uh, it was clearly false, but fine, entering her room in a boarding house. I say it was false because it was a man by the name of George Hutch Hutchinson, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. Yeah, I know. And he... Who was friends with Mary. Um, he met her at 2 a.m. She said, hey, I'm broke. Can you give me some money? And he said, no, I'm broke too. And then they like parted ways, but he, creepy, watched her leave and uh, met with somebody who George said it was a man, another man. And she said, he said that she seemed to know him, but the man was dressed really well for the area. So he being a good Samaritan, <laughs> George followed her and this man back to Mary's house uh, and watched the house for like an hour. Um, and uh, didn't he also provide the police he, with, with an a impossibly very... detailed description, yeah, exactly. including like eyelash color, exactly. which he could totally see of this dude. At 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, from yeah. like 20 yards away. Absolutely. So wow. there's been a whole lot of kind of stuff yeah. there. But the story is probably at least partially true because another woman who lived in the boarding house said that she saw when she came home at like 2.30 a.m., there was a man standing across the street watching the house. That would be Hutchinson, right? So that's, yeah, that was Hutchinson. Oh. That's creepy. Either way, it doesn't really matter. There are a few reports of Mary being around at like 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. the next morning, but pretty much those are false. The coroner said that her her time of death was between 2 and 8 a.m., which is a wide range, but the mutilation that she sustained after death was definitely a couple hours worth of work. I don't want to go into too much detail about this. We've been doing lots of gruesome stories this whole time, and we've already talked about some gruesome stuff this but time. But let's just say it was an like, escalation This over. takes the cake. I mean, yeah. no one in the house heard any commotion to signify when she might have been killed, but she was killed with a slash to her throat, probably. It was quick and quiet. The rest is really awful. Her clothes were neat, neatly folded on a chair next to her bed, which means that maybe it was a John that she brought home. Probably. She was likely um, asleep. They think she was asleep when her throat was cut, um, signifying that the person was in there with her. However, um, her room in the boarding house, didn't. Uh, she'd lost the key. 
So she broke a window and just like would reach in and unlock it. So it could have been somebody who gained access later. Her mutilation is horrifying. Body parts removed, all kinds of cuts, gouges, runs the gamut. Yeah. If you really want to know about this, there one, will just be look links. it up. Yeah, just yeah. Google her. There are pictures too. Mm-hmm. Another yeah. nice little tidbit fact is that there was apparently like a really large fire in her. You know, they had stoves in their rooms, and yeah. there had been some clothing burned to provide light for said mutilation. So that's Mary. Kelly. Either that, or you know, my 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 think my take on that is that the um. The murderer probably had his clothing soaked with blood, did a quick change of clothes, and then just threw the clothes in the in the. Front, Which is even more the, disturbing because that means yeah. he brought a change of clothes he intending brought... to get that wild. Yeah, yeah, I Which think so. Which is really disturbing. Well, well alternate, I mean... but she was she was living on and off with a man, so there it's possible that there were other men's oh, clothes. Or good, good as point. as I think somebody has mentioned, there's also the theory that perhaps uh, Jack the Ripper dressed as a woman. When coming and going from these things to uh, that was uh, yeah that was Jack London is, or who was it no, no. it was Arthur Conan Doyle had come up with that yeah, yeah. and I believe that uh, we, maybe we, he just borrowed some of Mary's clothes maybe yeah, I mean it be. would explain why like nobody saw anything unusual leaving mm-hmm. the women's boarding house that she lived in but <sighs> yeah deep but, breath a, a nasty little murder. And then we uh, we've got one more outlier that we're just going to cover yeah. real briefly. This is one sort of uh, related. Sort of maybe I don't really know. This is Francis Coles, um, aka Francis Coleman, Francis Hawkins, also known as Carity Nell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from, but uh, she uh, she was someone like Marianne Nichols and all the others. Her, her life was not approved by alcohol. She was a prostitute in the Whitechapel area for reportedly about eight years preceding her death. And on the day preceding her death, she had been bar hopping with a merchant seaman named James Sadler, who was arrested, and um, and they, they actually tried to uh, send her to prison for her murder, but it didn't work out that way because he had a pretty good alibi. We'll get into that a little bit. This is real quick because I don't think this is even related to the Ripper. Uh, she, like many of the others, went went back to her lodging house where she'd been staying. She was booted out because she didn't have cash to pay for her bed for that night. And so she wound up back on the streets looking to earn a little money so she could sleep for the night. And she bumped into a, a fellow prostitute named Ellen Kalena, or Kalena, Kalena, I don't know how her name is pronounced. Hmm. We'll say Kalena. Uh, anyway, a man approached them. And he propositioned Kalena, and uh, he apparently made her spider sense tingle, and she said he wouldn't have sex with her, and so he punched her in the face. Whoa. What a gem. I know. What a great guy. And then propositioned uh, Francis Coles, <laughs> and Coles left with him. Well, well, that's not good judgment, do you think? I mean, yeah. Well, uh, at 2.15 a.m., uh, her body was discovered by a constable named Ernest Thompson. There was a railway arch, and she, her body was in there, and she was still alive. Her body had been, her, her, her throat had been slit from ear to ear. She was bleeding profusely, but he noticed that her one eye opened and closed, so she was still alive Ugh. at that time. He blew his whistle for more help and all that stuff, and they went and got a doctor. But of course, she died. Like, oh, she bled out. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but... 
uh, it doesn't look like she was really. You know, she's part of the Whitechapel murders, but uh, the murder was not really the same. I mean, yeah, no, was, it's just it's just that one piece throat, of her throat cut. Throat was but slipped, nothing else. But she matches. wasn't mutilated. Although, then again, it's possible because the the constable reported that when he was approaching the crime scene, he heard retreating footsteps that sounded like a man's footsteps running away. Mm-hmm. And so, it's possible that. Interrupted again. He interrupted the, he interrupted the crime, and uh, that maybe it was the Ripper. Uh, but here's why I don't think it was. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, yeah, James Sadler was released uh, because witnesses had seen him. He was a merchant seaman. He was seen uh, between 2 and 3 a.m. and was too drunk to commit the murder because he had been bar hopping with her the night before. Uh, the reason I don't think so is no mutilation, although, again, there's extenuating circumstances yeah. here. Also, she was killed with a blunt knife, and the medical examiner reported that. Uh, the Ripper used a sharp knife. Yeah. This was a blunt knife. So, okay, there you go. Well, that that is seven victims total that we've talked about. Hmm. And I think, you know, things that I hadn't thought about was... The lives of these women yeah. at the time and the things they go through, and I know it's sad. It's very sad, yeah. and and they're they're kind of in this story, as Richard said. He said they're they're kind of the forgotten piece of the story of who they were, and he brings up some really good points, and so I want to share that with everybody. I think the the, the, impo- the, the other important thing is that uh, he. he I mean, I think the victims. I think the victims often become, if you, for want of a better way of putting it, the forgotten victims in, in in the case, because we just got the names of these women. But what they, virtually all of them, followed a similar pattern, and it was a really tragic pattern in that a lot of them came. I won't say they came from wealthy families, but they certainly came from, uh, you know, they weren't poverty-stricken women, but they'd all become alcoholics, and it was a sort of a downward spiral that uh, they then their marriages had broke down. They'd been sometimes ostracized from their families uh, and then they ended up in the east end of london living transient existence in the common lodging houses uh, so they weren't prostitutes by choice they were prostitutes by necessity uh, and i think that's the thing that we've got tragic victims who often get overlooked and uh, i think that's the case and also the fact that he was the world's first real media murderer i mean it's often said he's the world's first serial killer which is not true but he's certainly the first one where the press start to realize oh this, this, this is capturing people's imaginations uh, and so the press start going to town on it and uh, what's interesting is that um, over that 10 week or so period when when the murders are really grabbing the attention and terrifying people uh, and shocking people. The newspapers are coming out several times a day reporting on what's going on, the latest finds, and they're bringing all this salacious detail to their readers. Uh, and suddenly you've got... They almost go over the top. And when Mary Kelly gets murdered, it seems she's the last victim, uh, it seems that the press realise they'd gone too far. And it's almost as though a light switch has been switched off. And... Uh, it, it stops it. The, the, the salacious detail eases off uh, and then interest is lost. But for that 10 or so week period, we've got this opportunity. I can't think of any other period in history where you can look at a specific part of a major city in, uh, in England, oh, anywhere really, but in a major city in England in this case, you can look at a tiny part of that area and because of the newspaper reportage, get an insight, if you like. It's a window into the past and just look at the daily lives of the people living through the horror of the Jack the Ripper murders. 
We've, we've covered the victims. Now, something else that we need to talk about is the actual activities of the police. Yeah. Uh, they went for donuts, right? Exactly. No, they did not just go for donuts. Joe. Did donuts exist, in, by the way, in the 19th century? I don't think they, I don't think the donut existed. I think it might have accidentally been made, but I believe that is a Dunkin' Donuts creation. Huh, okay. okay, I know it's not a Dunkin' Donuts creation. Please, nobody send us scathing emails. I was making that up. No. It's a joke. Uh, but let's, uh, let's talk about the police. Um, something that people need to understand about the time in the area, there was not one police force. There was actually two police forces in operation that were trying to catch Jack the Ripper. There is the Metropolitan Police, and then there's the City of London Police. Uh, the, the murders of Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, and Mary Kelly all took place in Whitechapel and Spitalfields. Which was not really actually in London city limits, correct? Correct. That yeah. was outside of it, so that was the jurisdiction of the Metro Police and Metropolitan Police. And they were investigating those four murders. Catherine Eddowes, however, when she was killed in Mitre Square, that's inside of the city of London. So her her death came under the city of London police. And here's here's how the how this works is when London was first created, and we're going back to Roman times, because London was a Roman outpost, mm -hmm. and at that time they call it the Golden Mile because Rome had built this and London was a one, basically a one-mile square. And they had built walls around it and the Thames ran through the middle. And these walls, I've seen remnants of these walls. We're not just talking about a brick wall. We're talking about six to eight feet thick and upwards of 20 feet high. Mm -hmm. All commerce happened inside of the wall, so that's why they called it the Golden Mile. And everything else, everybody lived and all the work happened outside of that area. So if you ever happen to get a chance to go there and see these walls, they're fantastic. The pieces that are still there are amazing history because they're thousands of years old in the middle of a friggin' giant city. I know. And which... I thought, I didn't see those in London, but I saw when I was in Chester, England, uh, there, there, that was also another Roman walled city. Mm -hmm. And there's remnants of the walls still there. And it's, it's, it really is incredible to think that this is like back to the times of before Christ. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these, you know, these, these policemen, they are doing a lot of work. You got police constables that, uh, bobbies basically, that are on their route and they walk their route to keep an eye out. Jack the Ripper murders hit. They are suddenly inundated with work. And this is back in the day. Again, like we said, no cars. Mm -hmm. Everybody's on foot or no maybe phones. you got a horse yeah. and you got to track everything down. So it is tons and tons of work. And there is a little, evidently, there was a little bit of bad blood between the two police forces. So That's it wasn't like they really worked together. And there's a lot of things where guys, uh, you know, as I, uh, I know one of us had said at some point, or maybe it comes up later, they name their suspects, but they're all naming different suspects. So people weren't really working together. Mm -hmm. So I, though I know they were trying to do good, it wasn't the most organized 
search and investigation that I've seen. That is, you, and that is like really typical. I mean, they, I've I've heard many stories and things like serial killer investigations here in America, where the local police department gets really, really territorial with the feds. Like the FBI comes in mm-hmm. and stuff like that. There's a lot of bad blood. It's so it's it's par for the course. Well, well you know who else was trying to do good? Hmm. Sherlock Holmes. The, the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Oh yeah, that's right. Those guys. Do you want to talk about them? Yeah. Yeah, they they were trying real hard to do good. They were uh, comprised of like 14 area businessmen, tradesmen, one actor, <laughs> and they were formed out of, quote, a concern not for the women who were being killed and mutilated, but the impact the killings were having on the commerce in the area. That makes sense. Uh, on September 10th, 1888, which may have been a bit late, uh, they elected their chairman, who was local businessman George Lusk, who becomes fairly important in a minute. I'll talk about this in just like a second here. They, they were interviewed by lots of local papers. Uh, they encouraged the police to issue a reward for information. And when the police were like, nah, they were like, all right, we'll do it. So they <laughs> put a bunch of posters up trying to inform people saying, you know, any information that leads to the arrest of this person, we will give you a reward. A uh, yeah, it was not a whole lot. <laughs> Yeah. And actually, after the death of Elizabeth Stride, the committee decided that they were unhappy with the level of protection that the police were offering. So they created their own citizen patrol force and employed two private detectives. But George Lusk, in October of 1888, was the recipient of one of the famous Ripper letters. In fact, it gets a little worse than that. It was a nice little bit. It's the nice little bit of, of Ripper lore. It's the From Hell letter. Yeah. Yeah. This is very popular. Yeah. So uh, he returned home to find a small package in the mail. Um, Upon opening it, he found half of a human kidney and a note that read, From hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, (laughs) S-O-R, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, pervased it for you, the other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took out... Took it out if only you wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Monsieur Lux. Lusk. Uh, hmm. You well. should, if you want, you should go out and read it. It's there's so many misspellings in here. I can't even. It is. Uh, it's awesome. Well, I've seen a copy of the original too, and it's it's almost illegible. The, yeah. the writing is so bad. Yeah. Mr. Lusk, he was pretty sure it was a hoax, actually. And so he was like, yeah, I'll just throw it away. But he told a couple of his fellow committee members and they said, well, actually, eh, maybe we should take that to the police. And he said, all right, fine. So they took it to the police and it kind of just fades into lore from that point. There's yeah, a lot but... about the letters. And I don't think that we're actually going to talk too much about the letters. Um, I think that our interview with Richard shed some really good light on the letters. Yeah, the letters, I think, uh, typically in in situations like this, usually all kinds of cranks write letters in. So it's really hard. Or, you know, journalists or whatever. But this one particularly sticks out because it did have that half a human kidney, which follows quickly after another letter... Uh, you know, and I don't. I didn't take notes on this. I just kind of vaguely read about it. So I'm doing this 100% from memory at this point. But there was another letter that wasn't released that was right before Lusk got it. Uh, this package with a letter that said that they were that the, the Ripper or whoever sent the letter claimed they were going to send half a kidney to somebody, and then a couple days later, half a kidney showed up. So there's some, there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that perhaps there was 
some of them were legitimate, but there were, you know, as Richard talked about, and actually we should probably just let him talk about it. Yeah. There's, there's so many letters that it's hard to kind of suss out what's real and what's not. Yeah, and plus, you know, also, if you're planning on sending a crank letter with half a kidney in it uh, to some person, then it's not that hard to, like, plan it all out and send a, a letter saying that you're going to send half a kidney to somebody several days prior to that. I mean, it really, you know, mm -hmm. does, still doesn't prove anything to me. Now, the letters, well, first of all, I mean, I, one of the things we have to differentiate between is the Whitechapel murderer and Jack the Ripper. I often say Jack the Ripper was the man who never existed, because he didn't. Uh, he was the creation of a letter writer, and that was the famous Dear Boss letter. I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. And it goes on to gloat over the murders, and then it's signed Jack the Ripper. Now, the letter arrived, or it, it entered the investigation, when the police were getting a lot of press criticism. So the police made the letter public in the hope that it would give them a breakthrough. And very soon they realised they'd made a massive mistake because once the letter went public, it gave the murderer a name, that name Jack the Ripper. And so the media throughout the world latched onto that name and it almost turned it into a sort of a pantomime on, on the streets of the East End of London. And the other effect was that when that letter went public and it was signed Jack the Ripper hoaxes throughout the land began reaching for their pens and the police become, became swamped with this a tidal wave of Ripper correspondence. So there were lots, I mean, we're not just talking one letter, we're talking lots of letters that were coming in because every one of them had to be investigated uh, and assessed and if, ever if it was possible, followed up. And it brought the police investigation almost to a standstill. It, it had the opposite effect to what the police had wanted. It gave them more more false information they needed so but the letter itself the police at the time and a lot of experts today are convinced it was the work of a journalist who actually did it uh, probably just to just keep paper, uh, papers selling but it certainly did turn five sordid east end murders into an international phenomenon and gave birth to the legend of jack the ripper so another kind of issue that uh, we wanted to bring up is kind of it has the potential to be an inflammatory issue, and that's fine. Is that there was a lot of anti-Semitism happening yeah. in London at this time. There's, I mean, you know, and Richard talks about this a little bit, and we'll, we'll let him talk about it in a minute. But, you know, after the double event on the 30th, um, police, of course, just like, you just were scouring the area for clues. And at about 3 a.m., a constable found a bit of bloody cloth, like um, a shawl. It was, I think it was a piece of the apron. It was a piece of the apron, excuse me, that was apparently later to be confirmed as um, part of Catherine Eddowes. Eddowes. Eddowes apron, excuse me. And above it, written in chalk, was either the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing or the Jews are not the men to be blamed for nothing. Um, Jews is spelled J. U W E S. There are a couple different police officers who responded to this. They all uh, wrote down different things <laughs> that yeah. this said. And I guess here is where we need to back up a little bit to the Mary Ann Nicholas murder. Nichols. Nichols. Nichols murder. Uh, and the, the rumors about her killer being um, the Jewish man named uh, Leather, Leather Apron. Apron. Yeah. This was not a particularly good time for Jews in London, no matter what. There were a lot of them. A lot of them were in this kind of Whitechapel slum area. And as Richard 
kind of talked about, their influx kind of coincided with these murders. And I think that everybody could pretty much agree that, like, this is totally circumstantial. It doesn't actually say anything about Jewish people on the whole. But, of course, if there's a new group of people in an area and then things that people have never seen before start happening, they're going to blame the new people for the new thing. Yeah, and there were a lot of Jews from Eastern Europe who would come into the area. Absolutely. and a Of lot course, of them... there were a ton of Irish that had also recently come into the area, too. So. Sure, but I think, you know, one of the things that's really handy about the, like, Eastern European Jews that come into the country is that they all speak Yiddish or their native language, not English. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it's so, it's kind of the human nature of it to just say, like, well, those people are different. Well, it alienates yeah. them from you and you from them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, and there's also the blood libel thing too. You know, the uh, I mean, there were there were lots of really really nasty stereotypes about Jews that had circulated in Eastern Europe for years. Mm-hmm. The blood libel being, you know, what that is mm-hmm. that the Jews had would would kidnap and exsanguinate Christian children and use their blood to make matzo like matzo cakes. Yeah. Oh like yeah. 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 Well yeah. there's but there's the other aspect of this as well where we kind of get into the the potential of police may have apprehended the ripper and there was one credible witness but they were both Jewish and it is part of Jewish law that you can't testify against each other. So there's there's that aspect of it as well. There's, is is that actually part of Jewish law? Yeah, yeah it is. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's in the Bible. <laughs> there's also some kind of weird things with the translation of this statement because there's a double negative and there's a huge misspelling. Uh-huh. So there are some people that think that with the double negative the phrase means was was meant to mean that the Jews would not take responsibility for anything. There are also people who suggest that Jews spelled that way is actually like a slang word for two, which I don't know what that would make that whole thing mean. There's also some kind of like Masonic, Freemason interpretation there. No matter what, and you know, I'll let Richard kind of tell this because he tells it better. It was destroyed before there could be a good record. You know, photographs existed at the time, but there's no photographs of this graffiti. And, you know, Richard says why. So when that message was found, Sir Charles Warren, who was the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, he was horrified because at six o'clock that morning, you were going to have the Petticoat Lane Market around that doorway. And it was going to bring hundreds of Gentile buyers or even thousands into an area and to a market that was staffed largely by Jewish storeholders. And the the building where it was found, that was Jewish flats as well. So what he thought was, if that's on the wall in the morning, we're going to have riots. There were, and innocent Jews will be, will be attacked uh, by the mob. So he destroyed the message. He had it erased before anybody could see it uh, the next morning. And that's fed into the conspiracy that Sir Charles Warren, being the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, that he's done it to cover the fact that the Jewies might have been a, a reference to a Masonic ritual. But uh, it, it probably was. I mean, the different officers who saw it, said, uh, some said it looked faded as though it had been there for some time. Uh, my personal belief is it was coincidence. It was already in the doorway, and Ripper just happened to drop the apron in that doorway. Yeah. Uh, what, 
what's not often pointed out is that there was lots of racist graffiti uh, against the Jews going up in the streets at the time because exactly. they were scapegoats. So it's probably just a piece of that graffiti. Yeah. But it feeds nice the way the fact the misspelling the J U W E S it's that misspelling that's seen it turn up as part of the Masonic ritual and stuff like that. Yeah. So you don't uh, you probably don't think the Ripper was Jewish then, right? I, I, I think he might well have been. Uh, I, I, I certainly, I mean, Kosminski was certainly Poli, uh, Poli, uh, Polish Jew, uh, so he, him and his family had come over. Uh, and I think, actually, it says one thing we do know about the police from quite early on, when, when they, they realised that if they kept pushing the, the, this, this theory, they were looking for sort of a, a Jew, Jewish immigrant, this could lead to anti-Jewish rioting and pogroms and innocent people would be killed. So I think if the police did... Uh, catch him and he was Jewish uh, and they couldn't try him so you had to go to an asylum I think the police probably would have covered it up uh, because they would have had full-scale rioting in the East End and innocent people would have died so I think from that point of view the police showed themselves to be quite enlightened so I think there's a good possibility that he was uh, as I say and if it was Aaron Kosminski which pro of all the suspects I mean he's up there because the two highest ranking officers seem to believe or definitely believed he was the killer then uh, I think we have to believe it. But uh, say it, it, it's interesting. And uh, had they revealed it and then said, well, we're not going to prosecute uh, because he's going to an asylum and we haven't got the evidence that we need, they, they would have had rioting. And I think that's what the police were terrified of. Now we get to the part of the story where we look at the suspects of who could have done this. Some of the suspects. Some of the suspects. <laughs> no, okay. yeah, and, there's and hundreds. There's, there, there's a huge smattering of potential, and I emphasize the word potential suspects. I want to, like, suffice to say that there is an entire Wikipedia article dedicated only to the suspects in this case. And it is huge. Yeah, Giant. and it, it includes George Clooney, by the way. Probably. <laughs> well, here's the thing: is that we we brought up a, a couple of questions to Richard that he had some really good input on, and the things that that we wanted to kind of find out was one: why did the Ripper do it? You know, what was his motivation? He was a psycho. Um, <laughs> and then the next was, of course. Why are there so many suspects? And mm. and like I said, he had some really good things to say. I, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't think there was a motive. I, I think it was just purely for the pleasure of the kills. There's all sorts of theories. Uh, there's theories that he uh, he'd been in, he'd caught a disease off a prostitute, and uh, it was his revenge. There's a theory that he wanted to rid the East End of prostitution. There's a wonderful theory that George Bernard Shaw first put forward uh, that he was a social reformer and he did the murders to expose the horrible conditions in the area. So, which is an interesting. One. Yeah, what but a progressive I, guy. This is it. He was just saying, yeah, well, no one's listening, so I'll, I'll do something that will make people sit up and take notice. And they most certainly did sit up and take notice. Uh, but really, I just think he was just probably some nobody living in the area. He had, uh, he had voices in his head. And every so often, those voices got too much, and he went out and murdered. And for the rest of the time, he was probably somebody who people living next door, people who saw him thought, you know, he's eccentric, but he's harmless. And and that was it. And that's often what these serial killers turn out to be. It's often when they're brought to justice, or if they're brought to justice, it's often the last person you ever expected it to be. So you were saying you, you kind of think uh, the voices in his head, that kind of leads me to think maybe something like schizophrenia? 
Yes, as I say, it could, could be any, any form of illness. Schizophrenia seems highly likely. Uh, the interesting thing about Kosminski is uh, that well, we, from what we know of him when he is in the asylum, he's not in the... In fact, he's put down as non-violent. Uh, so he just doesn't seem the sort of... Uh, the, the, the sort who would do it. However... I have to stress that the Kuzminski we know is the Kuzminski from 1891 onwards. Uh, we don't know what he was like in 1888. Uh, you know, he could have, his, his condition could have deteriorated by 1891 a great deal. Uh, but the only violence he's uh, ever put it, or shown to have done is to throw a chair at an attendant uh, at the asylum. So he, he doesn't seem homicidal. And there's other suspects who uh, most certainly were homicidal. So it's, uh, it's interesting. We'll say it, it's just one of those things that we'll, we'll just never know. I'm just curious, why, why has the list of, of potential suspects grown so exponentially? The main, the main reason is because he wasn't caught, so anybody can come up with a person. I mean, what, what a lot of writers do is they get their suspect and then they make the facts fit their suspect. Uh, there's very few writers actually do it the other way around, which is what should be done. Uh, get the facts and then, uh, oh, sorry, get the, get the facts and then look at who the facts lead to. Uh, the, the point is, if, if you go to a publisher and say, I want to write a book on Jack the Ripper, they'll only really consider you if, if you've got a suspect. And the more dramatic the suspect is, then the more chance you've got of that book being published and, uh, you know, uh, and, and the book becoming a bestseller. So like I said, that's, that's, that's a lot of good information, and I, I really like the points that, that, that Richard's brought up. Now, we're going to look at a couple of the suspects. Again, like there our are top too four, right? many to really go into, mm-hmm. but we're going to go into a couple mm. of them. Yeah, we're not going to talk about the royal family or anything like that. Well, maybe well, Actually, I, we'll I, I do. We'll talk a little I bit want, about that. I'm but... going to go into that one a little bit because I find that one fun. It, it is fun. It's a fun lark. Not and exactly and the things that, up, uh, no. that that get brought up are pretty humorous, but let's let's not go there yet. So let's start off with the first one that we've got on our list, which uh, Montague it, John Drew? Yeah, Montague. yeah, John, Montague. Montague. Tell Montague. us about Montague. Uh, Montague, who, by the way, I don't believe was the killer, but I'll, let me. But he's still b- believed by some people to be the killer. Uh, he was uh, from an upper class background. He studied at Oxford, worked as an assistant schoolmaster, and while he was doing that, he studied law and he became a barrister in 1885. Uh, and for reasons unknown, in 8th, November 1888, he lost his job at the school where he was a schoolmaster uh, for reasons unknown, again, as I said. In Dece- on December 31st, 1888, his body was found in the Thames River, unfortunately. He'd, he had stones in his pockets, which apparently had kept his body submerged for about a month. So he apparently went into the river early in December. And he was 31 at the time of his death. And that wasn't, just just as another bit of history, that was not uncommon at that time for mm-hmm. people to go into the Thames and not be found for a while. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. Thames is a very nice, relatively clean river today. Was not at the time. Again, as Joe no. talked about, tanneries, yeah. breweries, all, all these things sewer. dumping all of their, in mm. open sewers, all dumping into the Thames. So it's a nasty river. So nobody wants to go looking for someone they think might have gone into the river because you don't know that you'll come back out. Yeah, and it, it, I'm sure it reeks. People probably didn't even want to get close to the river back in yeah, those Not days. safe drinking water. Yeah. 
So Super con- fun site. Yeah, the contents uh, of his pockets, he had a train ticket dated uh, December 1st. He had 16 pounds, that's, that's British pounds, not 16 pounds of gold, but he had 16, he had gold worth 16 pounds British, or sterling, I guess would be a better yes. way to put it. Uh, he also had a check for 50 pounds. Uh, and by the way, this was a lot of money in those days. Yep. Yeah. And so he was carrying a lot of cash. That was that was still in his pockets. Yeah, Just in throw his that pockets. Out there. His, yeah, so he was it, robbery and murder was obviously not a motive mm-hmm. here. Um, he his, his estate was valued at about a quarter of a million dollars pounds in today's numbers. So uh, financial privation was probably not a motive for the suicide if he was indeed a suicide. It was ruled a suicide after the inquest. Apparently, his family had depression and mental issues. His grandmother committed suicide. His aunt attempted suicide. His sister, later, long after his death, um, killed herself. And also, there was a note that he left, which read, quote, Since Friday, I felt that I was going to be like mother, and the best thing for me to do was die. So I'm thinking that perhaps he actually did commit suicide. But his death coincided with the end of the Ripper murders, which is why sometime after the fact, this didn't happen right away, but eventually, years later, people started putting two and two together and saying, hey, golly, he killed himself right at the same time the murders ended. Uh, I don't believe that there's no... I I just don't believe there's any credible evidence that he was actually the Ripper. What do you guys think? Any, Any opinions there? No. The, no, the timing is the the convenient key that piece is about of information it. for that, me. But that's yeah, it. and if we're going yeah. by like people who died around the same time, exactly. There's a lot of them. Right? There's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. And so I think it's a kind of a slander on this guy's memory that uh, he's been suggested as possibly being the Ripper because there's absolutely no evidence for it. But and yet still, he is considered to be a prime candidate as the Ripper. Unbelievably so. The next candidate that we've got is a gentleman by the name of Michael Ostrog. And he wasn't a suspect, again, kind of like uh, Montague. He wasn't a suspect that came out right away. Instead, he came up several years later from a, a letter that was written that's been referred to or, or called now the McNaughton Memoranda. The memoranda says... Michael Ostrog, a mad Russian doctor and a convict and unquestionably a homicidal maniac. This man was said to have habitually been cruel to women and for a long time was known to have carried about with him surgical knives and other instruments. His antecedents were the very worst and his whereabouts at the time of the Whitechapel murders could never be satisfactorily accounted for. What he he might have been unstable, but nobody could ever pin the name on him. And, and again, as it was, he came up later on. But he was a petty criminal. So this is my again. This is my issue with him being called a suspect. He was a petty criminal. He was never known to be a violent criminal. He was in and out of jail for petty theft, but never murder. And he was arrested for theft in July of 1887 and sentenced to six months of hard labor. So that's from September 1887 forward. Released on March 10th of 1888. So this is before the murders happen. And he was 
quote-unquote cured of his petty theft habit. Well, the problem is, is that he, not too long after that, was arrested and sentenced to two years in prison for theft in Paris on the 18th of November, 1888, Uh which is before the killing stopped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's why I have a problem with with Ostrog being keyed in as one of the the major suspects. Mm. Yeah, that would make sense. Well, okay, so much for your weak candidate. Let me give you you another weak candidate here. George Chapman. Um, George Chapman uh, was also known as the Borough Poisoner. He was a po- he was a Polish immigrant in London with an unpronounceable name. His his last name was uh, I'm not going to pronounce the, his entire full name, but his, his surname was Klausowski, uh, or Klosowski, I think is. A better there's way lots to of consonants. Yeah, there's lots of consonants. Klosowski, I think, is the best way to pronounce it. But uh, he was arrested supposedly, and I've got conflicting information about this. And he was, but supposedly he was arrested and questioned regarding the Ripper murders. Uh, he had training and surgery in Warsaw and worked there as a doctor's assistant until about December 1886. And to the best of our knowledge, he arrived in London in 1888. He married while he was in London, apparently liked to play the field. He had several mistresses, three of whom he murdered by poison later on. This is well after the whole Jack the Ripper thing was done. Uh, The murders took place in 1897, 1901, and 1902. An investigation into the last murder found revealed that the death was due to poison, so the bodies of the previous mistresses were exhumed and tested, and, well, it turns out, yeah, he poisoned them too. And so he was tried for the murder of the last one, whose name was Maud Marsh, and uh, was convicted and was hanged in April 1903. So why is he suspected to be the Ripper? Well, here are the reasons. Uh, uh, a Scotland Yard detective named Frederick Aberline said that he was his chief suspect, and the reasons were that he uh, he had questioned his wife, and the wife told police that he would often go out for night or at night for hours on end. Uh, another reason is that he arrived in Whitechapel at about the same time the murders began, and left to go to America about the same time that the murders ended. His description matched that of the mass, the man last seen with Mary Keller. Kelly, mm-hmm. which we've talked about. Yep. Yeah, the, the description is, uh, you know, to my mind, kind of bogus. I agree. Yeah. Uh, he was violent, and this is kind of documented. He was misogynistic. Okay. So, again, uh, Frederick Aberline, the Scotland Air detective, said that for those reasons he believed that he was the best Ripper suspect. But I think it's pretty thin. I mean, uh, as far as him going out at night for hours on end, well, the guy was a philanderer. I mean, yeah. of course, of course, he left to go out for night, you know, and and have sex with his mistresses. Of of course, he did. So and that doesn't really mean anything to me. As far as the other stuff goes, I mean, it's just none of it really is much in the way of evidence. Well, I'm sorry, he's a weak candidate. Yeah, are you guys ready for a strong candidate? Yeah. You so ready? Uh, yeah, I think we are. Yeah. Ready. Aaron Kosminski. Yeah, I've heard of this guy. Yeah, you may recognize him. Uh, he's the one who like. A couple months ago, DNA uh, evidence, quote, proved was the Ripper. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a Russian-Polish barber. 
He emigrated to England in the 1880s, and he did indeed live in Whitechapel in 1888, and he was Jewish. I'm going to go ahead and like give it up front. Modern detectives, this is my like big problem with him. Modern detectives aren't sure that this is like that Kosminski is the Kosminski that police suspected back in the 18 late 1880s, 1890s. But I'll talk about that in, in a little minute. Kosminski was in and out of insane asylums and institutions most of his life. One could assume that like in this day and age currently in, you know, the teens, if somebody was in and out of mental institutions, they wouldn't then be allowed to like be barbers. Like, <laughs> sharp implements like around people's necks but those, these were different days um and you know his insanity took the form of auditory hallucinations paranoid fear of being fed by other people that actually was so bad that it drove him to pick up and eat food that people dropped as litter and he refused to wash uh and the cause of his insanity was cited as um <clears throat> self-abuse yeah that was actually, Which we now know, let's be honest, is not like so much cause of insanity as like sanity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, the uh, that that was. I mean, even when I was a kid, I mean, self abuse was supposedly going to create issues for you, health yeah. issues. Yeah. yeah. So in February of eight or of uh, nineteen nineteen, self abuse, so, masturbation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm just making sure mm-hmm. I understood. Yeah. yeah. Not that I'm trying to make this gratuitous, but I just wanted to make yeah. sure I understood because what you... Because you guys story... have the, the funny looks on your face, like, yeah. self-abuse, wink, wink. Okay, uh-huh. I get it. Right. Yeah. In a story where we've talked about a man cutting uteruses out of women, masturbation, that's a bridge too far. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's just a bridge too far. I, I can see it, though. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the gateway drug to mm-hmm. like mass murder and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess in February of 1919, um, Kosminski, he was institutionalized at this point, had been for a number of years uh his illness had driven him down to a startling 96 pounds and he died in march of that year in in a mental institution he died of gangrene right no <laughs> so the the kosminski connection to the ripper murders wasn't really established until a couple years later when people were going through old records um a constable apparently in 19 no 1894 uh, wrote a letter to his daughter saying that Kosminski had been a suspect, though f- no first name had been given. Uh, the letter stated that Kosminski was a suspect because he had, quote, a great hatred of women with strong homicidal tendencies. And and I'll, I'll be honest, nothing in any records of, of Aaron Kosminski, the, the man that we're talking about right now, suggests that he was violent in any way. The only little spate of violence he had was he threw a chair at a nurse once. Mm -hmm. And he was in and out of institutions a lot. Most records say that he was kind of... um, Docile? Yeah. He was like, he was actually scared of people a little bit. He didn't, he was actually scared. You know, as I said, he was scared of like people. He didn't want to be fed. Like He was scared of interacting on like an emotional level with other human beings he didn't ever attack anybody. He would just kind of like would sit in his cell and be quiet a lot. A few years later, a commissioner wrote a book in which he said that the Ripper was a low-class Polish Jew. And 
um, before we even get into the DNA evidence part, uh, doctor's notes, as I said, all describe Kosminski as harmless. Also, he spoke mostly Yiddish when he was locked up, which indicates that his English was likely not very good, um, which means that it would have probably been pretty hard for him to lure women into alleys. Yeah. To be a John of any kind. But, you know, the other the other big thing for me is that Aaron Kosminski wasn't put away until 1891. Yeah. Um, and the murder stopped in 1888. That's kind of key, yeah. he uh, The murder should have gone on for longer. Yeah. And then we come to the DNA evidence part of this. And I guess we'll let Richard explain a little bit about what the DNA evidence is about. And then I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit after, you know, he, he, he kind of describes how the evidence quote evidence came about to begin with. Yeah. He can do it way better than I can. You know, and, and it, for the DNA evidence, I loved when we when we asked Richard that question. <laughs> his initial response was my favorite part. Yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that one. <laughs> <laughs> we had to. <laughs> the DNA evidence—it's it, it, The evidence is interesting. Basically, it's a shawl that purports to be the shawl that Catherine Eddowes was wearing, and it was reportedly found next to her body, picked up by a police officer, and taken home. And it's passed down through generations of the family, and finally it was auctioned in, I believe it was 2007, when it was bought by Russell Edwards, who's the man behind the new book on it. Now, he then had it subjected to DNA testing, and he then matched the DNA to a descendant of Catherine Eddowes, uh, who was uh, and a descendant of Aaron Kosminski. The only problem is he hasn't told us, he's refusing to say who the descendant of Aaron Kosminski is. So, historically, we can't really check the veracity of, of that. It purports that on the shawl they found Aaron Kuzminski, or they found the DNA evidence to suggest that uh, Aaron Kuzminski had been near the shawl. Uh, but even if his DNA is on the shawl, it, it doesn't prove that he murdered Catherine Eddowes, just that he, he was uh, somewhere, you know, that he, he met Catherine Eddowes, and, uh, well, since uh, what, what her occupation was, that, he, that he'd been with Catherine Eddowes. So, in my opinion, the shawl, the shawl doesn't actually prove anything. Uh, but it's it's interesting. I mean, it, it keeps the case going. It keeps interest in the case. And it adds a, an extra element to it. So, as I say, it, it's interesting that it, it, as I say, that the two leading officers do seem to have thought it was Kosminski. And so I, I would say, yeah, it's it's interesting, but it's not conclusive. It's it's far from conclusive. And I think we'll, we'll never know for sure because we, so much of the evidence has gone. You know, I, I'm with him. You know, I, I'll say up front, I, I don't buy this whole DNA evidence thing. Um, there are a lot of problems with it. You know, they got the DNA off the shawl that supposedly maybe belonged to one of the victims. We've kind of discussed this. Not only is that weak, but there's like no chain of evidence for the shawl. The study or the evidence hasn't been peer reviewed. Also, as a fun fact, the news broke in uh, the Daily Mail, which you may or may not recognize as a British tabloid. That's like where the results were first published. That's a little sketchy. It's the and equivalent in, of the Weekly World well, News. Well, actually, you know, in fact, one of our um, own Oregonian reporters, Susanna Bodeman, puts it, the Daily Mail's reporting on science and scientific evidence is, let's say, not known to be robust. Which <laughs> I think is like, yes, yeah, exactly. And, and the thing to remember, too, is that, it, you know, nobody knows who this uh, shawl or whatever it was belonged to. If it was yeah. the it killers was. or if it was the, the victims. If it was the victims, and if it had some uh, quote-unquote DNA evidence, uh, 
Well, she was a prostitute, so it could have had so DNA as evidence from all kinds of guys on it. Yeah, and I guess so as a final nail in the coffin, Richard brings this point up. And we don't even know, for, for, in all honesty, we don't even know that it was her shawl. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those interesting things. And uh, it's, it's passed through a lot of different people. I mean, a lot of people have, have had it. Uh, I suspect, uh, although I can't, you know, well, I don't know for certain, but it's been, it's been handled. And there's also rumours that her, her descendants handled it at a conference. Whether, whether that's true or not, that's in dispute. But certainly the photographs of uh, Russell holding the shawl up, it's not banked, it's not, uh, you know, it's just there. There's no, uh, you know, so cross-contamination is also a possibility to look at as well. And here's my one last final huge problem with Aaron Kosminski is Aaron David Cohen. You guys, did you did he come up in your research at all? No, that name doesn't yeah. ring a bell. So it turns out Aaron Cohen is a name that asylums used when names like for example, Kosminski would have been too hard pr- to pronounce or like the person admitting that person to an asylum was lazy. They, it was like it was like a John Doe. OK, basically. I was going to say they were right. like, oh, that name is too hard to spell. We're just going to say you're Cohen from now on. <laughs> so Aaron David Cohen, a.k.a. Nathan Kosminski, was a bootmaker in Whitechapel in the area until on the 12th of December, 1888, he was institutionalized because syphilis. Um, yeah, probably. He was crazy, it turns out, and kind of the killing time kind. Uh, it's hard to tell because, you know, records are sketchy, but I recommend a Google on this guy. He was violent. He was violent against women. He was violent against nurses. He went kind of crazy. He was institutionalized just right after the, like, Conical murders. Conical. Conical. I can say that word tonight. Ended. His last name was Kiminski instead of Kosminski. He was a Polish Jew who was a bootmaker who wore a leather apron at the time. I think that, you know, if we're talking about like strong Kosminski. Well, I, I suggest David Cohen. Well, and the name Kosminski yeah. has been spelled many ways, yeah. and there's yeah. been a lot of conjecture over mm-hmm. which Kosminski exactly. was it. So that's, so that's a very that good point. So I think David Cohen is a huge problem for the Kosminski situation. Yeah, yeah no, it's all confused. I mean, yeah. what's his name? Um, like, the same thing with uh, Klozowski, which, uh, a.k.a. George Chapman. I mean, I mean, yeah. they've all got these kind of, like, similar-sounding names, and... Uh, it's just a big jumble. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. And so anyway, I think um, I think we'd agree that the the Ripper was probably. Ah, just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean I have I have an outlier that I'd like to bring up that we've talked about a little bit, and you know he's not accepted as a like serious. Yeah, let's <laughs> but, have it because I've got some not so serious. Yeah, ones. and we talked about him a little bit. Uh, George Hutchinson. The dude who like stood outside of Mary Kelly's oh, apartment true. all night. Oh yeah, and the then weirdo. gave the like, and then was like, yeah, no, his eyelashes were black. I saw them. <laughs> I seen it. You know, as previously stated, um, on November twelfth, eighteen eighty-eight, uh, George went to the London police to make a statement about the November 9th killing of Mary Jane Kelly. He gave a super detailed description, which we just talked about, and nobody really believes this description. And in fact, uh, one it? of the inspectors said that uh, maybe, maybe George was trying to cover his tracks. Um, or maybe maybe George was you know actually a lot of, it's not uncommon for serial killers to insert themselves into the investigation mm-hmm. 
Yeah. That was, and, I mean, that's kind of the conjecture here is that like, he was like, oh yeah, the, no, he, like, I got a great look at him and this is exactly what he looked like. And, but he wanted to be a part of it. The other thing is that he was, he was pretty broke. And at the time he would have made a whole lot of money selling his story to the newspaper. Uh, so yeah. there was But that he motivation. is brought up as like a vague kind of, there's not a whole lot of information on him, but it could, I mean, it, it's, it's possible. Possible. Not plausible, but possible. The next outlier that we've got is what's often referred to as the Royal Conspiracy and the Freemason yeah. Connection. Mm-hmm. And I could walk through that, but we we talked with Richard about this, and I really like the way he puts it. Mm-hmm. So we're actually going to have Richard explain the royal conspiracy and then how that ties in with the Freemasons. The classic one here, of course, is the royal conspiracy uh, and the fact it might have been a member of the royal family, which um, has it's been one of my favorites. This is it. It's been around since the 50s, uh, the royal family theory. The member of the royal family in question was Prince Albert Edward Victor, who was Queen Victoria's grandson, and would have been King of England, except he died in uh, 1892. But uh, we know his whereabouts on the nights of most of the murders and he was I mean the night of the double murder he he wasn't even in London so uh, we we know where he was he was uh, so th- th- he probably wasn't and then that comes into the royal conspiracy theory that Prince Albert Edward Victor had had a child by his mistress Annie Elizabeth Crook uh, the Freemasons had broken the family up because the chart it's all to do with her being a Catholic and everything the Masons had broken the family up the child was smuggled to safety by their servant girl, Mary Kelly, who brought it to the East End of London. And then she told, or fell in with a gaggle of drunken prostitutes, told them what she knew, and they started blackmailing the royal family. So the Masons set out to silence all the prostitutes, and they did it with the royal physician, Sir William Gull, who went round in a carriage, and uh, depending on what film version, but tempts them to the carriage by showing them bunches of grapes. Uh, and then they, they get murdered. And Mary Kelly's the last victim. So Mary, with that, the murders come to an end because there's no longer the threat of the royal family or society being blackmailed. A wonderful theory, but it's uh, probably just a conspiracy theory. It's a it's a fun theory, but uh, great theory. It, it doesn't. Yeah, but it doesn't bring into into account why the, the mutilations took place. No, I mean, I'm, 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 as I say, I would love to believe it was a dera- deranged ancestor of Prince Charles, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you know, you bring up a, another good point there, which is the Masons, and I've I've heard them, refer, or seen them referred to in a lot of this, and is that just based mostly from this this royal theory, or how did... Yeah, it mostly comes out of... Uh, the, the, the whole thing came... Well, first of all, came out with... It was Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, and it was a book by Stephen Knight. And Stephen Knight uh, was based on a, t- a man called Joseph Sickert, who... Uh, what the claim was that uh, the... Joseph Sickert claimed that he was he, he was related in some way to it, and so he went and said he he gave the theory to Stephen Knight. Stephen Knight then developed the theory. Uh, both of them, both of them are now dead, uh, but uh, it's it's it. I mean, it's wonderful to think that it's it's a government conspiracy that the Masons got involved and that everyone did it. And uh, of course, people like people do like that type of conspiracy theory, but. Uh, it's it, it, it's highly unlikely, uh, but as I say, 
but the Masons being such a shadowy organization, you know, that uh, everyone's got this, they've got this mystique about them and all the rituals they perform and everything. So it's, it's, it, I mean, this is the whole process of murder by decree, the Christopher Plummer film, also uh, the From Hell film as well. But let's say it, 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 it's, it's, it's good entertainment. But as historical fact, it leaves a lot to be desired. But, but it, it is cool, though. I and mean, if you could find a tie into, like, say, uh, the Knights Templar and the, the Holy Grail, that would be even more awesome. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's all you need is that, you know, maybe have Princess Diana involved in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to work on that. I'm going I'm to come up That's with it. something. You know, get, get, get Roswell involved, you know. Get, get a few aliens, uh, alien abductions, and you're, you're, you're made. You're, yeah. <laughs> and maybe have, have him escaping on the Titanic, and you've done it. <laughs> So, well, so uh, anyway, I'm not convinced. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also have I have one other outlier that I liked that I wanted to bring up. Oh, why? Because there's actually some credence to it. I uh, are you going to talk about the aliens? No, I'm not. Oh. Uh, we're going to talk about a guy by the name of Carl Feinbaum. Okay, Carl Feinbaum Is it was Feinbaum or Feigenbaum? Say that. Feinbaum. I'm not sure how to pronounce so this. So many vowels. Yeah, yeah Feinbaum. Okay, well, anyway, Carl was executed in the electric chair on the 27th of April, 1896, for the brutal murder of a woman by the name of Juliana Hoffman. Carl. Murdered her by slitting her throat. Hmm. He was not able to do anything else because her son interrupted the murder. Oh. And he jumped out a window onto the roof. And then Carl took off and they caught him. But here's the thing. That's not his real name. What's we real don't name? know. Jack? We don't know exactly <laughs> what his name is. His name could be. It was Anton or maybe Carl with a C or a K, Zahn or Zom or Strobom, like uh, Strobond, I don't know. He evidently changed his name at some point, but we don't know why, and evidently he did this on a regular basis. Where, where did the murder take place? Well, this murder happened in uh, the United States, so wow. it wasn't in England. But he was a sailor, and in the 1880s, he was, you know, he had a, a merchant lifestyle, a mariner lifestyle, and his whereabouts aren't exactly clear, but what we know is that he supposedly could have been and would have been in the area in England at the time in London. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with the other thing, and, and this is the what drew me to it. Okay, well, I said it had a lot of credence. It's actually pretty weak, but I like it yeah. anyway. What the hell? Is, uh, what we know is that after he was uh, executed, as soon as his declaration of death was put out, his attorney, William Sanford Lawton, stated, I believe that Carl Feinenbaum, who you have just seen put to death in the electric chair, can easily be connected with the Jack the Ripper murders in Whitechapel. I will stake my professional reputation on that. If the police will trace this man's movements carefully for the last few years, their investigations will lead them to London and to Whitechapel. But really? did he provide any evidence or... Of course not. Yeah. 
Absolutely, of course uh, not. Publicity seeking, seeking attorney. Yeah, but. yeah. I actually, I think that this guy was looking to cause a little media splash. Yeah, but it is interesting that you know it was. It wasn't just a quick slash. He really cut this lady's throat in a vicious manner while she was in bed. Mm. And And we don't know where he was, and we don't know what he could have been doing that whole time. So he's just this ephemeral, mysterious person. Yeah, it could have been. But, I mean, what uh, the circumstances of this particular murder, though, was was the woman he murdered, was she a prostitute? No, was she, she in Whitechapel? No, what? Yeah. Uh, how, <laughs> yeah, there's that. But how this whole thing went down is she was. I think it was New York is where this took place. Mm. She needed some money, so she decided to rent out a room in her house, and he was her first lodger. Ah, first and last. Yeah, <laughs> sounds Which like goes yeah. without saying. Yeah, and. Within a day or three, I, if I remember the details correctly, then he committed the murder. He mm. killed her. So he, it, it didn't Hard take long, yeah. but it, wow. yeah, it's just weird. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about He's taking a lodger, but maybe not. I don't, yeah. I'm thinking not. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm thinking probably that uh, it's possible, but no reason to really believe so. So there you yeah. go. Yeah. No, no. I, I completely agree with you on there. Uh, and, you know, there's the issue of... And one of the things that was brought up was that it potentially, if this guy wasn't it, it's possible that the Ripper was a sailor, Mm. which would explain why he was out of town for weeks on end and the murders didn't happen. But my issue with that is why don't we hear about these kind of grisly murders in other ports of call, Mm -hmm. even places that aren't super, super populated? You would think that there'd be record of a prostitute or a woman with her throat slit and her organs pulled out. There'd be some kind of record. It was definitely like a widely publicized thing, too. I mean, you know, it wasn't just like oh, we only know about this in Whitechapel and in London. No, the whole world was looking for this guy. They were all fascinated by him, and he was a new sensation worldwide. So, you know, if one woman showed up with something like that in any other port of call, it would have set off alarm bells. I mean, it just would have. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely it, true. Although you know, it might be it might be also the the fact that he was a sailor, but um, perhaps he was also like a racist. Like, say, he was a German who hated the Brits, so he did a special violence to yeah, their I bodies. Guess that's true. Yeah, but when he was like off in you know other other ports, he didn't he he stabbed people to death, but didn't. Didn't savage Take it their to bodies. this level, yeah. yeah. It's possible, something like that, too. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's possible. And and the big mystery about this this whole Jack the Ripper story is that we have this time frame where the canonical five are murdered. A very short time frame. And then it stops. Yeah. yeah. Very short. Yeah, and it's a little quick. weird as to why it possibly could have stopped. And mm-hmm. there's theories about, well, he was caught mm. and he was committed or he committed suicide or anything like that. And and we we did put that question to Richard because we wanted to know, because he's done so much research on it, why he thought they just stopped so suddenly. 
There can only have been, well, there's, there's a handful of reasons for the murders, because someone like this doesn't get fed up and think, well, I enjoyed that, but I think I'm going to collect stamps now. Uh, <laughs> so, so something stopped him killing. Now, either he got caught, he, he might have died, so he could have died of... If, if I say if he had been given a disease, he could have uh, he could have died of that disease. Uh, he could have committed suicide. Uh, he could have been with his family who realised what had happened, and so they put him into a private asylum. That's a possibility. Another possibility is he went somewhere else. He moved and continued killing, uh, and uh, they didn't make the connect. You know, they didn't make the connection between the two, which is highly unlikely because they were looking for him all over the world. I mean, there's everyone the world over knew about these killings. So if he had gone somewhere else the connection would have been made. The other possibility is the police did catch their man. Whether they knew it was the Ripper, it's possible he was arrested for another crime, uh, went into went into a prison, and they didn't realise who they'd got. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, all sorts of, there's all sorts of suspects who came into the area left. Because the other thing about the area was, of course, it was close to the docks, so you did have a lot of, uh, each, well, <laughs> of ships com- shipping coming into the Port of London, uh, very close to the docks. So you had foreign sailors coming in left, right and centre. And uh, you had, say, uh, one of the reasons for the gaps, or the theory is that the reason for the gaps is because it could have been someone on a ship who was out of London for a period of time and then came back again and commenced murdering. The other interesting one is the the famous uh, Dr. Tumblety, the American, who's, uh, who was arrested for uh, acts of gross indecency in 1888 and seems to have been a, quite a, a favoured suspect. Uh, and he skipped bail when he was released from police custody. He sk- they said, you're not going to run off, are you? He said, no, no, no. And then he skipped bail <laughs> and went to America where he was... Uh... Now, the interesting thing about Tumblety is that uh, Dr. Tumblety, the pl- everybody knew where he was. The reporters were staking out his house in New York and Inspector Byrne of NYPD actually had him under surveillance and the reporters in America were going to him and saying, you know, is it... in America they seem to have known that he was suspected for the Whitechapel murders. And they said, oh, you know, is he going to go back? And he said, no, nah. he said, what Tumblety's wanted for is not extraditable. So he couldn't have been extradited for what he'd done, which seems to have been he actually got caught up. For, it was this act of gross indecency with several men. Uh, and that that's what he'd done. And that could, he couldn't have been extradited for that. But he obviously, if he'd been a murder, he would have been extradited. So obviously, NYPD and the London police didn't seem to think he was the Ripper. Uh, a lot of people think that he went to America and then disappeared, which is just not true. So, uh, this is awful. What? Jack the Ripper. Just like in general, Jack yeah. the Ripper is pretty awful. Are you going to say he's misunderstood? No, I'm, I mean, it's like an awful story. And I guess it like rounds out our October. And I'm kind of honestly happy that we're done with October now. Yep. We can go do some like really interesting stuff. I, and not uh, creepy grizzly. Yeah, not weird creepy grizzly stuff. But I think, you know, we don't. I don't think we need to talk about theories. I think that there's we're so kind many of, out there. No, well, and we've pointless. talked about obviously the stuff that we kind of like, and we obviously curated this episode a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think we need to. I mean, I think we're pretty good. Would you, yeah. you guys think we're good? I, um, yeah, I think, I think we're yeah, there. Think well, no, that, I think it's time to solve the mystery. No. All right, just kidding. Not no. the chupacabra. <laughs> no, not chupacabra. Can't blame this one on that. So I guess you know there will be probably a lot of links yes, on our website. There will. 
which is, um, of course, as always, thinkingsidewayspodcast.com. And by the way, of course, you know, as you said, all the links are going to be on there. Mm. Uh, We will have the link to Richard's website and his tour company Mm -hmm. on there. And if you are, if you're going to be in in London. If you are in London. And you are in London, take the tour. I've, I've been on... Ripper tours and they're awesome. Yeah, those tours are fantastic, and you really get to see the neighborhood and you really get to see it from the street, and yeah. it really is awesome. So, and by the way, does, doesn't doesn't Richard have a book coming out? Uh, I believe. Well, Richard has written two books, and I didn't know that he had a third. Oh, okay. Well, okay, It'll probably be on his website. That. Sorry, we, we went way yeah. off track there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other place you could um, be listening to us is iTunes. You probably are. If you are, feel free to leave us a comment and a rating. As always, we love that. Especially um, the high ratings. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the ones we really um, like. You know, we drop our shows every Thursday. So if it's Thursday and you realize you haven't downloaded it, you can stream us straight from Stitcher. It's always a good thing. We've also added a couple others. Oh, we have. Yeah, we've we've added TuneIn.com. Yep. So we're on there now. Uh, I know that we are in a couple of the apps that are really popular, That uh, the, the podcast apps for the mm-hmm. iOS and the Android. We've gotten on their list. Some of those newfangled apps. Yeah, those like newfangled app apps. things. Yeah, so we're, yeah. we're in a bunch of places now. Check the website. It lists everywhere yeah. that we're available for downloads and streaming. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, the other place you can find us is Facebook. Um, wow. There's a group and page. Yes. You can like us and join the group. Yep. Some good conversations happening there. Um, we also, as of this week, are on Twitter. Twitter! <laughs> find us, you guys. Find us and follow us, and yeah. we'll figure out how to use this Twitter yeah, thing. I, yeah, I'm i the youngest one in this room, and I am like don't know totally how to use it. So we're going to figure yeah. it out. Please it's a weird with us. text messaging service is kind all of. I can figure yeah. out. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. 120, 40, 140, 140 characters. 140 characters, yes. Yeah. yeah. And other than that, I don't know. But uh, Yeah, and then you can always send us an email. That email address is, again, as always, thinkingsidewayspodcast at gmail.com. We have a couple emails that we should be reading, but this show is like two and a half hours long, so we're going to go ahead and postpone those for just a couple weeks. I'm (laughs) sorry. Sorry about that, whoever you are. I know we've replied to you. I promise we'll read you soon. (laughs) (laughs) Two and a half hours is too long. So with that... I say good night. Bye, everybody. <sighs> Toodaloo. George Clooney. No, I think I think we've I think we've uh, I think we've solved the mystery almost. <laughs> I think we have. No, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you who my suspect is, Johnny no. Depp. Have you noticed that? Well, he made a Ripper Johnny. movie. Number one. And have you noticed he doesn't seem to age? <laughs> yeah, I think I think yeah, I think John, Johnny Depp is a. I, I mean, I I was, I I was used to say I think it was Queen Victoria because in in Colombo.
<laughs> well, and, and you notice that was almost getting involved. Yeah, well, you notice that in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and all the sequels, he seems to be very proficient with the blade. And he was addicted, and he was addicted to uh, 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 absinthe, wasn't he? As well. So. Yeah, exactly. Which was bored holes in his brain and made him go insane. And yeah, yeah. So there you go. It's Johnny Depp. So, yeah, so John, John, Johnny Depp done it. In fact, uh, he, he certainly murdered Abilene's reputation in the film because uh, Abilene was nothing like Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah, probably. Was. It's, it's, it, uh, Abilene's the character who Johnny Depp uh, played in the film, but it's uh, it, it's very, 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 very loosely based on Adeline. Yeah, they uh-huh. took a little artistic license with that one. It is. Yeah. But then again, it's a great film. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's really atmospheric, and what they were setting out to do, they, they weren't setting out to make a documentary. They were setting out to make, you know, a good horror film, and I, yeah. th- I think they succeeded there. Yeah, they did a pretty good job. Indeed. And how can you not make a great horror film when you've got the actual Jack the Ripper starring in it? <laughs>